Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Thursday, February 2nd. Um, we're getting back into the groove. Uh, good to see you. What are we uh, What are we talking about this week? Not only is it good to be back in the groove with you, Ricky, but we are tremendously fortunate today. We're going to be joined by Governor Jane Swift, who was the who was governor of Massachusetts back in the early 2000s. So first, I mean, Ricky, not only do we have like a, a politician on the show, but we have like a governor. Uh, incredible. And we'll, we'll give, we'll go over her bio in, in much more depth once she comes on. But uh, she is really uh, accomplished in a lot of ways and was a, a, a leader and a trailblazer in, in ways in terms of her age, her gender, um, all, all sorts of things as leading the state. So we're really, really grateful and excited to, to talk with her and that she's giving uh she's gracing us with her her time and and her her thoughts yeah i mean we are uh we continue to be very blessed and you know this is a bit surreal we have a uh, it really is it's uh yeah whatever it's it's i'm so excited for this conversation so i won't i won't uh belabor the point but um we're gonna welcome her on a minute but before we do that I just want to remind everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman at Cannon Hill Woodworking they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Boston since 2018 that's Cannon with two n's you can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com and we'll talk about this with Governor Swift but one of her main accomplishments both during her time in office and in the work that she's doing now is around education so I have uh, an education pun for you, Ricky. Ooh, back to the puns. I think you might be able to get this one too. So I'll, I'll give you like a, a minute to think about it. Oh yeah. Where, where do saplings go to learn? Where do saplings go to learn? I don't know. Trees. Uh, <laughs> elementary school. Ooh, saplings. Ah, I should have guessed. There, there you go. All right, but check check out those guys over at Cannon Hillwood. Uh, you guys know that they they make great products, and uh, we're very fortunate to have them as a sponsor. But uh, without further ado, we are super excited to to begin our conversation with Governor Swift. Well, we are now thrilled and honored to welcome Governor Jane Swift onto the program. Governor Swift grew up in North Adams, Massachusetts, out in the Berkshires, and then matriculated on to Trinity College, which is also my alma mater, so go Bantams. Uh, After that, she began her political career, which we're so excited to talk to you about um, when you were elected to uh, the Massachusetts State House as a state representative in 1990 when you were 25 years old. so we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, you were elected as the Massachusetts Senate in 1990. Uh, at All right. I'm glad you corrected that yes, because yeah. there's a lot of tension between the House and the Senate. Absolutely. So Massachusetts Senate at, at 25, um, after she served, she served there uh, for three terms and then 
went on to be selected as the running mate of Governor Paul Salucci in 1998, where she and Governor Salucci, the Salucci Swift ticket was elected in uh, to the governor and lieutenant governor in 1998. So uh, this was not only notable because of your your youth, but uh, your gender. And also you were pregnant at the time, which maybe we'll, we'll talk to a little bit, but it was historic in, in a number of ways. And then it became even more historic a couple of years later when Governor Salucci was nominated by President um, George W. Bush to be the ambassador up to Canada. And Governor Swift then became the acting governor of Massachusetts in 2001, where, um, which again, historic for a, a number of reasons at the time you were I believe the the youngest sitting governor in in U.S. history, and also you again gave birth to twins just a month into your term of of, of office. So, uh, and then uh, and then not only that, but obviously, you, I think you took over in April of two thousand one, and we have September eleventh, just a, a few short months later. So excited to get into all that. Um, but then Governor Swift uh, left politics largely, although I know you've remained active in various ways, but over the past two decades has held a, a number of roles. She currently leads Learn Launch, which is a um, Boston-based education nonprofit. She's the president and director of that. She's also serves on uh, a number of boards and those three daughters, which we briefly mentioned, are now almost grown. And uh, she also, in, in her spare time, she lives on on the family farm with uh, a couple of dogs, which she just mentioned that she's got to get in before it gets too cold. So, uh, No, those are the mini donkey and the mini oh. horse. I have to oh, the mini. The, the, all right. Yeah, you said the minis, but I just, like I, I said. No, the dogs, unfortunately, are inside, which you'll probably experience before too long. <laughs> and one dog. of those twins is a senior at Trinity. Oh, wow. Goodness. Under That's... deep undercover. Doing <laughs> it very different than I did. Ah, well, you probably, that's probably good as we were talking. Oh, about yeah. Very on, good. Uh, Mother is very happy of that. Yes. Um, <laughs> Governor Swift and I both enjoyed ourselves tremendously, but perhaps uh, had a little too much fun there. But things have seemed to work out um, largely. But uh, all right. Well, th- that's a, a very short, brief summary. But again, Governor Swift, thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time today. Thank You're you. welcome. And sorry, I'm using natural light and it's uh, going behind the clouds here and there. So uh, I'll keep moving around to get the exact <laughs> right lighting. Absolutely. Get a tour of my house. Oh, yeah, that's great. People, <laughs> that's encourage people to tune and follow us on Instagram. You can actually actually see where former governor lives. Uh, but yeah, I, I do want to start with your decision to get into politics and how you decided to do that at such a young age. Like Ricky and I, when we were bantering back and forth Ricky was like I'm still looking around for the adult in the room and we're far older than that you know what I mean but like at 25 how did you decide like not only that I want to do this but I feel like I can really give something here and then I'm qualified to serve in the senate uh yeah so actually it goes back to Trinity and the work I still do to this day uh largely in education and it was a really burning desire to fix a bunch of things that I felt like didn't work uh, for folks like me. So I'm from the city of North Adams, which is a blue collar uh, industrial city in Western Massachusetts. And uh, I'm much older than both of you, which is obvious uh, when I get in the sun in the right direction. This is not blonde hair. Uh, So um, I'm old enough to be both of your mothers. Uh, So what 
I, when I arrived at Trinity, it was the pre-cell phone era, uh, which, you know, everybody gets. Uh, that was very protective of my future political uh, ambitions. I didn't know it at the time. But what I also tell students uh, on campus now when I talk uh, to students or young professionals, which really, uh, like, is there actually weren't even ATMs. Like, you had to walk to a bank and open a new bank account. That was like the ritual when you first got on campus is like, which local bank do you walk to? Connecticut Bank and Trust had my business for a while. And then if you wanted money, right, which you needed actual cash to go to places, uh, the bar that I used to go to actually has subsequently been knocked down, probably profits uh, took a nosedive once I left or something. Uh, but the bartender actually is still around at a, a nearby establishment, but we won't get into that. But anyway, the day I showed up a long, long time ago at Trinity College, uh, and I just went back for my 35th reunion. So it was almost 40 years ago. Uh, it will be 40 years this fall uh, when I showed up at Trinity College. Uh, long time. There's a lot of things I've forgotten uh, between now and then, but I can tell you exactly what I was wearing uh, and exactly what the woman who moved into the room across from me uh, had as her ensemble uh, in her single. I did not have a single. Um, and the reason I can tell you that is because it was a startling, disconcerting experience that was only the beginning of a... Uh, realization for me, like, you know, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. So like many kids from a decent, um, and that's probably being generous if you were to look at different statistics, public school uh, in a very small, uh, we call ourselves a city, but it's smaller than most towns, um, very small city in Massachusetts. I was a really good student. Uh, and expected I would go to Trinity College and be a really good student. And I thought I was going to be a journalist. Actually, I thought I was going to be a sports journalist. That was my dream. Um, and I got to Trinity, and obviously the first thing I noticed is, despite all the care I had taken to wear the outfit that seemed perfect uh, from where I left, I drove two hours and 10 minutes south, which is not that far and I was dressed exactly wrong. I had never seen a tree-torn sneaker, which I get those don't exist anymore. Uh, pink and green IZOD shirts were not something people wore where I was from. Uh, I'm sure we had khaki skirts, um, but the needlepoint belts, uh, all of that, I was like, holy shit. This, sorry, am I allowed to swear? I don't know who yes, we're regulated yeah, by. Yeah, Ricky does it all the time. I had on pinstriped, jeans uh, with pleats in the front, a sleeveless shirt that I had acquired at uh, Radio City Music Hall and my first ever trip to New York City with some of my besties from high school. It said five, six, seven, eight dance. Told you I remembered every baby blue. Uh, and I had on high-heeled clogs without backs that my mother was not happy about, not because she knew they weren't fashionable, uh, but because she was sure I was going to break my ankle, which was a real uh, risk. I couldn't have been dressed more wrong, right? And more like Kmart special, let's be honest. And that's not Trinity. Um, so that was the first shock. 
I don't say because the world's so small now, I'm sure she was lovely, but the woman who moved in across the hall, I have no idea if it was her parents, hired help. Literally, they took every stick of furniture out of her room and moved an entire Laura Ashley set of furniture, bed sheets, matching, you know, comforter, everything you can imagine, right? To this day, my parents still have never had as nice a bedroom set and linens as we're in that freshman dorm. And so I'm like, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge, but you know, whatever. I tested out of the writing part. I don't know how. So now I go to my, you know, you go do your orientation. These, this is also back in the day when if you got financial aid and you got a work study job uh, at Trinity, they put you in the kitchen. Literally all the freshmen pretty much got assigned to the kitchen. And in the beginning, you were in the back on the line and we literally scraped dishes. I am not kidding you. And so we literally scraped dishes uh, and then put them in the um, big dishwasher. Um, this was not glamorous work, nor was it designed to have you blend in that, you know, you were uh, just the same as every other kid with their tree torns in Izod. But the real disappointment or shock came when I started going to classes and realized um, I had a professor who uh, challenged my ability to write, um, and English was always my jam. Uh, kids in fellow classmates, right, uh, were like, had already read some of the books that we were assigned in these English classes. I'm like, what? Wait, how, how, did, how did you already read these, right? Like, is that fair? Long way of saying, which is way too long, but um, I was completely blown away and for a really long time were chip on my shoulder about the inequities in education. And I am from, it's probably completely obvious already, a uh, big Catholic family. Um, and at, when I talk to people now, I actually say I was born with privilege. The privilege was my parents believed deeply in the power of education even if they didn't have a clue uh, about the difference between Trinity or, you know, the local state college that my mom went to, they knew there was one and that we should aspire to it. And they had us work really hard. But I also knew just how difficult it was for kids who came from a public school system like mine to compete. And, you know, you both may have had similar or different experiences, but, you know, I ended up being the uh, social chair of my sorority at Trinity. Uh, sororities at Trinity were very different than they were at Wisconsin, Ricky. Uh, and also my drinking abilities turned out to be very competitive. Uh, that was one thing we did well out here in Western Mass. Um, but um, in all you know, seriousness, I ended up finding my people, right? Like a lot of the football players, a lot of the kids, who came from similar schools. I actually was a really good at typing. We also used typewriters, not computers to do most of our papers. So I used to type papers for a lot of my other friends. And um, it. I wore a chip on my shoulder for a long time, both about how do we fix this? I also came from a small business family um, and went home after my junior year, uh, 
I think it was my junior year, I was going to help my dad, right? Because now I've taken one economics class as an American studies major. So like I should have been running his business, right? Because now, right, I'm at this fancy school. I figured out that I'm like the elite of the elite. So I'm doing an overhead analysis. And I was like, holy shit, dad, you're paying a ton of taxes. Like, I have no idea why you're keeping all our aunts and uncles and their, you know, kids all employed. He's like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Uh, So anyway, small business issues and competitive issues, all of a sudden the stress my dad held uh, as the oldest brother working with his father in this family business made a ton more sense to me. And, you know, this is really going to date me, um, grew up at a time when Republicans, particularly in the part of the state I was from, um, had a very strong bond with farmers and uh, with hunters. And the way that played out, you know, 40 years ago was we were really committed environmentalists, right? We had the most to lose uh, if, you know, the water that you drink and the air that you breathe was uh, not sustained. And it actually worked pretty well with my Catholicism too, in this big Catholic family. So that those things, and I'm going to, we'll get, you know, hopefully in a much shorter time period to like what I'm doing today, but there's a through line of those three elements and, you know, marrying a farmer and living in this beautiful place today, committing my life both through elected office and since to trying to figure out how we get excellence for every kid, no matter where they're born. Um, I still, at time, I swear too much, even though I'm a practicing Catholic, but um, I still have that sort of passion for how do you provide opportunity, but also how do you do it in a way that's fair to the people who are also working their ass off, right, to create businesses and jobs um, and do it in a way that is consistent with preserving for the next generation some of the most precious resources that we have, many of which are natural resources. Yeah, absolutely. And I've never been able to figure out why Republicans haven't seized on environmental issues, like at least the modern day. We'll get into the modern day Republican Party, both Massachusetts and national level towards like the end of our conversation. But like that's always baffled me because Maybe I'll filibuster so we don't have to get to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's just like for all the reasons that you say, whether it's the religious reasons of like, let's take care of God's creation, which it, the Republican Party is, is far more religious than the Democratic Party, you know, generally. And, and also just that like so many, so much of Republican base lives in like these more rural areas that you would think you'd really want to yeah. take care of preserve, but whatever, that, that wasn't part of, that wasn't the plan conversation there, but what, well, maybe we'll circle back to that. But anyway, I do want to keep talking about education. So once you do get elected to the Senate, you are instrumental in the passing of the 1993 Education Reform Act, which is still uh, really the the foundation for so much of education policy here in Massachusetts. And it also created the the MCAS test, which is like the standardized you test. Me, you probably hate me for that. I know so many kids who hate me for that. No, I'm, I'm uh, whatever. Yeah, I'm a fan of standardized testing. So you, you got a fan in, in me. Um, but so I'm, I'm curious, like now that you've had a chance and you've been, like you said, you've been in education for still three decades now in various forms and functions. Like, how do you look back on that act in terms of the successes that it has had and the areas that it still hasn't achieved what we maybe you hope that it would? 
Uh, so biggest privilege of my life, right? To be able, like to be motivated at 25 to run, to be fortunate enough to win, and then to be given a seat on the conference committee. And it was just, uh, and there were six of us on that conference committee. Tom Birmingham died uh, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And he was the person I served with on that. But um, it was even more special than that for a lot of internal pol- political reasons. It was sort of a real conference committee. Usually conference committees, uh, even then when Republicans had veto power and um, the uh, governor was a Republican, very often conference committees were really driven by the four Democrats, the two from the House and the two from the Senate. This one was not structured that way because there were issues like charter schools and school choice that had really interesting dynamics, let's say. Um, The Senate required that this be a true conference committee, and it was actually the Senate president at the time who strongly suggested to the Senate minority leader that I be the designee uh, on that conference committee, because I was actually not serving at that time on the Senate Education Committee. I had my first term, but not my second term. So uh, one of many reasons that uh, many folks were not aware that Senate President Bill Bulger was actually a great, uh, it was very good to me, um, frankly, and that's very unpopular to say, but um, for many reasons, he treated me very, very well uh, and putting me on that conference committee and then insisting that Republicans be present um, for all the negotiations and the votes was just such an honor. Fast forward to today. So I'm going to just Disagree with you a little bit, Brendan. We did not pass a standardized test. We passed an assessment system. And I think the big difference in why MCAS and what we did was as successful as it was is because we realigned curriculum, which was super hard to do, um, but we did it thoughtfully and with attention to implementation, which is a huge mistake the folks who did Common Core made. They did not pay attention to implementation and they pissed off suburban parents. And once they did that, they were toast. Um, We paid attention. We even teachers um, who didn't agree with us, educators, parents, we went out. I actually met as lieutenant governors, we were getting to some key milestones. I met with over a hundred different, I did a hundred different meetings uh, across the state in less than two years with education uh, influencers to talk about some of the stickiest pieces uh, of the implementation. And we aligned the curriculum to the summative assessments. Now, I think it was important and then tied the money to results. Um, It was hard, it was important, and it was largely successful. What it was not successful in doing was closing achievement gaps. Um, And while I am extraordinarily proud of it uh, and will defend it till the day I die, I also am more than a little bit surprised, although I can explain the reasons why, that it does continue to be largely the foundation and the framework for what we do today. The reason that I'm surprised about that is Massachusetts is by almost any measure, one of the most technologically sophisticated states in the country. 
and our education system is among the least technologically sophisticated in the country. Um, and there are a lot of folks who are proud of that. And I don't think it's anything to be proud of because we're sending kids into a world where whether we like it or not, and whether we think, you know, being on TikTok is good or bad, the world is moving at a really fast pace. And all parents want for their kids, right, is to be able to be healthy, happy, and live lives of purpose. And very few kids, um, and I call people your age kids because you're the same age as my kids, are going to be able to do that uh, absent any involvement with technology. And we do ourselves a disservice by thinking our K through 12 education system can be the best in the world and be ignorant of or give just a passing nod to technology. And the reason I bring that up in the context of MCAS is, you know, I already regaled you uh, with, you know, what the state of technology or the lack thereof was 40 years ago. Well, MCAS was passed in 1993, right? That's not that much longer after I was talking to you about 1983. In fact, it's 10 years later, right? So now, 30 years ago, what we could do to assess what kids know and tell their parents and their teachers where deficits in learning and comparing sort of what you know and what you should know and frankly, what I care about based on my earlier story, uh, how you compare to the kids you're going to have to compete with, right? And what they know and what's fair and what's equitable is really different. So today we can actually do formative assessments, right? Um, very frequently utilizing technology, we can get data back really quickly from those assessments so that we can start to pinpoint exactly where the deficits are in a body of knowledge. And we can also do adaptive interventions on a much quicker scale. And we haven't changed our accountability systems to be aligned with how technology could help us with the biggest challenge we still face, which is, yes, we want every kid challenged if you're already doing well, we want you to do better, but we also have to challenge and have high expectations for every kid and remediate areas of challenge. I have three daughters, completely different kids, right? One is a math brain, has been since she was little. The other two are also very different. You know, each of them, I could tailor instruction. I could go and meet with their teachers. I could look at the data. Not every parent has either the confidence, the time, or the uh, you know inclination uh, to do that. Um, but that's what every teacher should have at their fingertips, the ability to do. And we're not doing that today in Massachusetts. And we spend enough money, not in every school, right? We spend enough money and not for every kid spend enough money, the resources, both in technology and in money exist. And I would go one step further and say the complete abomination that is what happened, whether you were open, closed, or in between during 
COVID is in part, not in whole, um, a uh, falls at the feet of our inability to embrace new forms and a new ability to utilize technology as a tool, not as a replacement for anything, because I love teachers, um, but as a tool. And we hadn't done that in education. I'm sure both of you, if you were in college, listen, all three of my girls were in college during COVID. One got sent home from London. So doing your semester abroad from your childhood bedroom, no fun. Nowhere near as fun as my semester abroad in Rome. I will tell you that right now because she did not have a hot Italian boyfriend in her uh, childhood <laughs> bedroom. Okay. Her father was not going for that. Um, and the other to, you know, your freshman year, like two thirds of their college, it was, even when they were back on campus, it just, there were no activities. Like you couldn't go to the, uh, you, you couldn't, for months, you couldn't even go sit in Mather, right? That's the uh, cafeteria, for those of you who don't know, um, they probably have a loftier name for it, but uh, <clears throat> for the bad food, but it is an experience, right? You could get to see me 30 years ago, scraping trays, um, <clears throat> So, but you kept learning, right? Everybody had an LMS. Why do you think that is? Why did all the professors, whether they wanted to or not, already have their syllabus on probably Canvas is what almost everybody was using. Some were still using Blackboard because 15 years before that, they all cursed and swore about all the for-profit you know, post-secondary uh, colleges and universities, but they knew they had to compete because if they didn't, if you flunked calculus or chemistry and you needed to make it up in the summer, all of a sudden, rather than going and taking those classes, you know, at a brick and mortar institution, kids were taking them online and they were losing money. So now all of a sudden, first, the first movers like SNHU and ASU, right, started doing their own online a sudden Trini's like we are going to get our clock cleaned if we don't at least make some nod toward doing some things online so guess what crusty old professors who I love and many of them you know are my fans to this day you are going to have to put your syllabus online you're going to have to put and it was only a baby step to then turn on zoom right because everything you needed was already on a computer you already required to have a computer to go to college Think how different that was from where we were on K-12 and start thinking about why. And then think about why the hell is nobody having this conversation? And the difference between the pivot we could make in every other industry and in higher ed versus what we could have in K-12. And it tells you a lot. Wow. A lot, lot to, to try to digest there. I think so. Governor, so you know, I worked, uh, I'm in law school right now, but before I, I came to law school, I was a charter school teacher. Well, I was a teacher and then I was the teacher at a charter school. So one, the Education Reform Act of 93 that, again, we had referenced earlier, first allowed charter schools. So I'm, I really appreciate all of that. I think we were lucky enough when we did go to the pandemic where we had one-to-one -one Chromebooks for all of the kids. And we did a lot of things wrong. You already know who had internet at home and who didn't. No, exactly. Right. And then we could go and diagnose and we could try to like reach out to Verizon or Xfinity or whomever and be like, can we and get you had already gone through kids not knowing their damn password 27 times and figuring out how you're going to solve for that before the pandemic. 
Right. And I felt like, again, we did a lot of things. We should have done a lot of things differently or better. And obviously, like, that's hindsight because everyone was scrambling. But we were able to make that pivot a lot easier than a lot of other schools were. And I feel really lucky to have been in a, in a school that allowed me and us to I'm going to make another point. And by the way, were we going to let Ricky talk or should we just, I don't know. It's up to you. I, I could go it's either way. Yeah. <laughs> but let me make another point, Brendan. Why did you teach in a charter school instead of somewhere else? When did you decide you wanted to be a teacher? At so, what point in college? For like towards the end, and I taught actually at a. Would at you a have taught in any public school in Massachusetts or anywhere else in the country? No. Actually, you want to know what? That's a lie. You could have, but nobody told you, because you could have gotten a provisional license in the area you subbed in, but they might not have hired you. Instead, you knew you could go to a charter school or a private school. Do you know when I taught at Williams, which they don't have as much fun as us, they think they're smarter, but whatever, but a good NESCAC school. Do you want to know what the fourth most popular profession after graduation is at Williams? Teaching. Yeah. How many of you think go teach in our public schools? Yeah, probably a small percentage of that, right? Yeah. Because, so this is another I have opinions. This is how I ended up being a state senator at 25 and why I have to keep trying to solve problems because I pop off in uh, events all the time, not just on Zoom uh, interviews, but we have a historic shortage of teachers right now, yet we have probably the most um, service-oriented generation. I know your generation takes a lot of shit, but I you know, have three of them in my house and couple of them have friends. Um, so I'm going to tell them to watch this. Um, but but um, I know a lot of students your ages, and I actually run a lot of their uh, job searches because career services sucks at every college in America right now. I'm just telling you. Uh, so, um, so I help a lot of them with their job searches. A lot of them want to teach. And guess what? They can't go to the place where the biggest need is. So we got to fix that too. Get on that, Brendan. All right. So okay. not. Uh, yeah. Well, Fix that. Know. That's not a partisan issue. Fix it. So just to, to stay on, on that level of we, Massachusetts consistently is ranked as number one or in a, a top school in terms of education a, across the state. However, like the achievement gaps that you noted haven't improved in the last 30 years since we had that comprehensive reform. And so if these gaps still persist, if these issues within our system still exist, then what what's the hold up like what, what do you see like we just you just threw up all of these ideas of like technology that might be able to address these or some of these issues around licensing so then what's what's the hold up what why if we all this doesn't necessarily have to be a republican or democrat issue right everyone like you said everyone wants their kids to be in good schools and have their kids have a chance to go to college if they want to and be successful in that college and like why haven't we done anything in 30 years in a state that is so progressive and educated as massachusetts so um, I can't figure out. So Tom Birmingham just passed away. I put this on Twitter, told me something so important. Um, he was from Chelsea. I was from North Adams, similar type school system. And Chelsea, obviously a lot bigger. And he said, if you pass a comprehensive statewide reform that is in any way disadvantages suburban public schools, it will fail. And the perception became that Common Core was disadvantaging suburban public schools. I won't go there because we'll go down another uh, you know, rabbit hole. Somehow, 
we have all these smart parents in the suburbs in great schools in Belmont, in Lincoln. I don't want to just pick on people that like there's all kinds of places, right? And these really smart parents who likely have at least one phone and one computer, no matter what their jobs are, that at a minimum, right, are critical to how they do their job every day. Many of them use technology in a much more integrated, like a broadly defined technology. And somehow they have let the teachers unions, not individual teachers, but the teachers unions convince them technology is bad for kids. Now, we've also let teachers unions convince teachers that technology is going to replace teachers. Similar to, I don't know, you probably, you were probably in kindergarten, but about 20, you know, 10 years ago when they first started doing self-checkout at Stop and Shop, right? There was a big, there was a strike because the union that represented the folks who check you out at Stop and Shop uh, were convinced that self-checkout was going to result in there being fewer people to check you out at Stop and Shop. Well, you guys don't look like the type who spend a lot of time at Stop and Shop. I look like the type who does, and I do. Okay. It's right down the street from me. That's where I shop. So here's the thing. Are there fewer people working at the checkout and stop and shop? Absolutely not. First of all, if you bring your own bag, the damn things don't work, right? So that kid has to come over every time you put your own bag on the thing and that system, right? So now we have jobs for people to program the system, build the system, check to make sure you paid when you check yourself out. And there are a whole bunch of people like my mother who don't want to check themselves out. They still want to talk to the checkout person, right? Not to mention there are a whole very few people who actually want to be a clerk at the checkout place. And nobody's having babies because there are very few practicing Catholics. And even most practicing Catholics do stuff to make sure they don't have 10 kids. So we have all of those things going on, right? We did not eliminate the jobs at Stop and Shop. When we implement a technology, same thing if we use smart technology. Are there any fewer professors at Trinity because we use Canvas or at Wisconsin? No. But, and it, frankly, the other thing that fries my ass, textbooks aren't any cheaper either. The damn world language textbooks online are actually more expensive than the print ones. So figure that one out. But my only point being, it is always the case in almost every industry that people worry that the onset of technology is going to replace jobs. I wish I could tell you why in education, K-12 education is one of the few places that customers, which is what I would call parents, chose to believe it. Smart parents who, especially in Massachusetts, where many of them work in the industries where they know that not to be true. I don't know. So how do we close achievement gaps? We have got to 
remediate challenges and it's, you know, a bad word to say personalized. So I can say individualized. I'll use all the politically correct, but every child can learn. We have enormous challenges in society that make it extremely challenging in some classrooms. And for some children, the number of mental health issues facing kids, and we'll get to what I'm doing now. I have converted my farm to a rescue and education center, and we're doing a lot of place-based outdoor education. It is not at all at odds with uh, integrating technology. And some of the stuff that we're hoping to do, I just found this YouTube video uh, that we're going to use to try to figure out how to build a water collection system on the top of our barn, right? And so, I mean, in the past, I would have had to go find some system, figure it out, figure out the electric. Now, you can use technology to learn those skills, right? There's all kinds of things that you can integrate technology with high quality, hands-on, you know, uh, experiential learning, even if you're outside, because guess what? My cell phone works outside. So does my computer, actually. I have been... uh... Thinking about places where I might be able to jump in here and just actually really just enjoying this conversation. Um, the, I mean, I maybe just put a pin on. It. I think it is really interesting that that somebody who sort of in in many ways kind of crafted the MCAS system is now sort of at the forefront of like advocating for an evolution of how we assess students' progress and like how we can really think about meeting people where they are, but also providing that kind of sort of the leveling. Is there anything that you do today that you did the way you did it 30 years ago (laughs) that you're proud of? (laughs) Right? Like I I have like, right? Like my mother has rooms in her house, right? Like all all our parents do if they, like I'm lucky my parents live in the same house. Uh Uh-oh. Did I lose you? No, you're good. No, you're good. So, I mean, we have like rooms in my parents' house that probably haven't been redecorated since 30 years. But, you know, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there are, you know, people out there who kind of cling to the this old model of student evaluation um, and that sort of say that if we move away from that, we're, you know, we're losing whatever some of the more basic meritocratic or I don't know. I don't exactly know. I mean, like when I was in school, I feel like it was always the, there was never an evaluation of how the teaching is to me. It's just the student gets evaluated on how well they're sort of receiving the teaching. But <laughs> since we have you here and since you were, you know, our only uh, governor of Massachusetts guest, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk to you a little bit about your experience as governor. Um, so uh, maybe we can just transition a little bit there I mean, obviously, um, as you know, Brendan covered that that the youngest sitting governor at the time. I I mean, I think some of that is, yeah, like any reflections on how how that came to pass? Um, Obviously, it was a bit of a unique situation, but certainly one um, that I'm sure you think back on. And and I don't know anything you might have done differently or 
things that you were particularly proud of. Obviously, Brennan also talked about, uh, you know, how we had to sort of navigate post-September 11 at that time too, which for, for someone as young as you were at the time, uh, I, I, yeah, I can't even imagine. So I, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, some of your recollections of that time. By the way, somebody should call Zoom and say, here I am like shilling shamelessly for technology. And yeah. Zoom is like doing all kinds of weird things on my uh, picture. But anyway, uh, that's a better picture of me anyway. Um, so the irony is, so we probably have to, would have to do a whole series. Um, but I was from Western Massachusetts. I was female. I was pregnant and I was Republican. Um I was not planning to be the governor of Massachusetts. Um, I am a lot of things, um, some good, some bad. I think terribly funny. My kids would disagree. Um, so far, I'd agree. Yeah. Uh, excessively pragmatic, actually, is like ingrained in my bones. So one of the things, so yes, there's a lot that I learned from that time. And I think... Anybody who's ever been a leader would tell you if I could have known what the challenges that were ahead would be and what the mistakes are that I would make and give a complete hell. Tom Brady would probably like choose certain plays to do over, right? Now that he knows what defense was and he's the best that there ever was at the position he played. So yeah, there are things I would definitely do better, but the Reality is I was not um, setting myself up to be the governor of Massachusetts. And so there, Massachusetts is different than a lot of other states in that most states, the economic, political, and sports center are not all in the same place. And so the culture of political coverage and the degree to which the influencers of media coverage, political support, irregardless of party, are centered among a small cadre of people in the capital city um, is unique. I was successful, very successful, as a state senator and a congressional candidate from way outside of that power structure. And frankly, a big part of the way I was successful was by kicking the shit out of the so-called Boston crowd, right? And so I wasn't wasting very much time uh, going to lunch, courting the Boston, you know, uh, political press. By the way, if I had called them, they probably would not have returned my call. Because uh, I was irrelevant to them. Um, I did occasionally, this is a very different culture and time. Uh, as a young senator, there was an era when Christmas parties in your state house office were a thing. And, and I already told you, right, like my uh, ability to compete at Trinity was based on my social skills. So I may have thrown some really good uh, holiday parties Back in the day as a young state senator, and I am certain some members of the Boston press corps uh, showed up at those, but they probably didn't know whose office they were in, right? They just knew it was a really good uh, party. Um, so 
I had didn't have the groundwork uh, politically and support. I was able to raise a lot of money, but that was more because of the congressional race I had run um, and the fact that the Republican ticket had taken up this uh, um, informal um, approach to running as a ticket. And so I had support from Governor Salucci and I also raised a ton of money as a uh, congressional candidate. A lot of national Republican women's groups were very supportive of me. I also, uh, and I think anybody who's ever had their first child, there was just an article written in Boston Magazine by a young female reporter who herself was sort of revisiting uh, that time. And, you know, she does it from her frame. Um, and I went back and looked at some of the articles she linked. Now, some of the quotes in some of those articles I cringe at, right, is a 57-year-old, you know, probably will be a grandmother within the next decade. But the things that you say when you're a young mother under attack, of, you know, blithely, uh, and by the way, I'm sure some of the more cringy things I said were also not the only thing I said. Um, as you can see, I'm not great at sound bites, right? And I occasionally like shoot from the hip and say wise ass remarks. It's a really, really bad political strategy because they could just take the out of context wise ass remark. Like, so did I say that? Yes. If you heard me say it and listen to the whole 30 minute podcast, it lands differently than you insert it in the middle of an article. So you know, I, I was not like a media darling. And um, I also was doing something first that got way too much attention than it deserved, frankly. Um, I mean, every single one of my friends from Trinity, like my friends from, like they all got married before me. They all had kids before me. Um, and like none of them, like, we all had a lot of the same problems. It was hard to find professional maternity wear, but like they didn't have to worry that wandering around in shitty looking clothes was gonna you know, make, not intentionally, but implicitly, people would look at you and we weren't rich. So put that like right on the, so wandering around in borrowed, hand-me-down, not great looking maternity clothes sent an implicit sort of signal, right, of not being, having it all together before you even opened your mouth. So there's lots of things that were working against me. And then, frankly, there was so much attention to the kids that until there was a crisis, like, I, I don't think anybody knows anything I did. The only reason people know now about the education stuff and that I served on the conference committee is because I've spent 20 years since then working only on education and only give interviews when people want to talk about education or the work that I've done subsequently to mentor young women, right? So, um, but I um, had to deal with the attention to my kids in a way that 
was just very stressful. I'm not sure if it was ultimate. It, well, it definitely was not a successful strategy because it painted me as not a very likable person. Like I think people got the sense that, you know, um, I didn't really like my kids maybe, or I wasn't a very good mother because I could never bring them out in public after the beginning. And I never talked about them um, unless you knew me in person um, with no press around. And then I never stopped talking about them. But like the difference between what people who knew me thought about me and the public's perception about me just as a person. Um, and frankly, like I used to come home, my husband would say, why were you so angry when you were talking to the press? Well, you'd be fucking angry. No, I shouldn't have said that word. You, <laughs> right? If literally you're standing there with six guys and they're all leaving at two o'clock to go to their kid's soccer game, A, nobody even knows, or if they do know, they're like backslapping. Everybody's telling them they're like the world's greatest thing. And if you dare to try to, you know, have your husband bring your daughter up to the office at noon for a half an hour because you're not going to get home till nine o'clock. You have a female reporter who sees your husband heading out for a run say, who's watching that baby? This happened. And then a week later, there's this huge scandal that Jane Swift's got her staff watching her child all the time. And if you go read articles now, it's, you know, I'm like, seriously and here am I like thinking I'm doing the right thing not leaving the office in the middle of the day trying to get as much done as I can so yeah is there stuff I do different yeah I freaking changed society um, <laughs> so I mean so there's so, there's so much in there that I want to un- I want to unpack a little bit and maybe this next question will kind of get us there. So like not now sort of the end of uh, your term as acting governor is coming up where it's 2000, late 2001, early 2002, we're heading into another gubernatorial election year. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Yeah. Where like quitters never win and winners never quit. And so I was going to run. Right. And um, I have, I was, enormously fortunate throughout my entire professional career. Um, And I know it more over the last year than I did. My husband was a awesome stay at home dad and hated politics and was the first person every time to tell me to run because him and he and my dad believed in me. Like, everybody should have somebody who believes in them, like whatever it is you want to do. So are you in law school too, Ricky? I'm, I'm not. Um, All right. So what are you going to do? What do you, what's your like life's passion podcast? <laughs> you need somebody who believes you will be the podcast extraordinaire and Brendan needs somebody who believe he will be the lawyer that my husband and my dad, like when I got out of that race, they were most worried for the people of the Commonwealth, the kids of the Commonwealth, like everybody find that person to marry. That's what I tell my girls all the time, right? Find the person to marry that it's a difference in marrying. Well, especially like if you're going to be a partner, having kids, like 
that's the ticket. So, um, but, you know, we were not rich, which by the way, we also couldn't buy off problems we had, right? When the first thing came up about helicopters or babysitters, I could have just written a huge check if I had it and it would have all gone away. Mm -hmm. Um, Couldn't do that, right? Because I had to go buy a $3,000 maternity suit uh, that would have been given to me, but that would have been illegal um, because I was you know, obscenely pregnant with twins on the day I was being um, sworn in. So $3,000, you know, on a $75,000 salary with, you know, three kids at home. Don't cry for me, Argentina. But, you know, that was not a fun conversation with my husband. But anyway, so I was going to run. Mitt Romney, you know, jumped on his white horse out of um, saving the Olympics in Utah he could spend in, I'm not a big, like, you're never getting money out of politics. I had raised a lot of money. I was going to be very competitive, but remember I said how pragmatic I was? Mitt Romney, what, it would have been a very ugly, expensive primary. So all the careful planning I had done about how I could occasionally see my kids, which by the way, remember, I couldn't bring them to any events because those were the unwritten rules that I had to play by, not anybody else, right? Mick could bring his five kids and grandkids anywhere he wanted. And then who I eventually ran against, my kids had to stay out here on the farm where nobody could see them. And frankly, they could live a great life. It was great for them, not so great for me. Um, And so I was going to have to do twice as many guess when fundraising happens. Not at noon on Wednesday, telling you that right now. You occasionally can get some of those, but nights and weekends. And guess what? Most of the money is not in North Adams. So I was going to be in the other end of the state every night and every weekend for two years and probably not going to win. But worse than that, my husband had given up his job to stay home with our kids because as much, and he had been offered a huge job when we first moved to Boston. And he knew, and it was, you know, he gave me lots of great advice, but one of the best pieces of advice is these kids are only little once and it's going to go really fast. So I'm going to stay home and we'll just figure it out. And we did. Um, And guess what? You know, you go to somebody's wake and funeral and nobody ever mentions a couple bills you paid late, uh, but everybody mentions you know, the time you drove to the field hockey practices or the oranges that you cut into quarters and that ends up being the stuff that matters. So I think we made the right decisions for our family, but I had a very, very good friend who had run a lot of races and she ran um, the race that Bill Weld won in his first reelection. And articulated that the person who had lost really badly, and you can go look it up and I don't want to say names, like it's Massachusetts is, and I'm a huge mass hole sports person. So I'm probably one of them. Um, Massachusetts is really cruel to losers. And she, the day before, you know, Mitt had called people and told them he wasn't running 
it made it really curious about why I'd reserved a ballroom and ordered a bunch of streamers. And so, you know, we, I know people thought we were stupid, but we weren't. And so we knew it was going to announce the next day. And this person was smart politically, but mostly she was my friend. And she said, here's the thing. You guys are living on your income. If you run this race and lose, it could take you a year to get anybody to hire you. That's just the way things are in Massachusetts. And I don't think you guys, like you have three little kids and I don't think that works. I don't know if I've ever told that story as bluntly, um, but I mean, that basically, that's why I didn't run. Like, it, it's, it sounds like you don't have any regrets, which is, uh, I mean, I think that's- No, I list, wish the world was different, but yeah. listen, yeah. I grew up in a very- my mother's probably the most practical one in our family. My mother told us our whole life, life isn't fair. Like you can sit in your room and cry about it or you can just go change it. And I've chosen to be one of the people who tries to change it. And I, um, you know, have worked really hard since I've left office to continue to try from a different point of view to make education better. And I have mentored literally hundreds of young women. Uh, and, you know, some days on a good day, I can do both at the same time. I, I guess maybe just on that one point, like for the, I, did you ever feel, I mean, I'm sure you did feel like this, but that the Republican Party was just at that time in Massachusetts, not willing to put forward uh, like a female candidate to go uh, to, like to lead the ticket basically for the governorship. It was, did you feel like you should have gotten more support having done the job that you did I mean, beyond the education, obviously tax cuts and there are other. Yes, but listen. Injuries. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yes, but also no Democrats were going to ride. I mean, all the big feminists sat on their hands, too. Let's be honest, right? Yeah. They, their feminism came right into direct conflict with their partisanship. And many of them chose partisanship. So uh, there were not a lot of heroes or heroines. Uh in the story. So obviously it's kind of come back now that we have our first elected female governor and governor Healy just a few few months ago, and you've kind of been back in the news in that way too. So I would be curious, like your thoughts on how much you think things have changed over the, over the course of the last couple of decades. So I've said this, I think things have changed. I don't think they've changed enough, but they definitely. So I think your generation um, wouldn't put up with the shit, frankly, that I put up with. You just quit. (laughs) So I mean, I don't know. That's that's a little bit flip. Uh, God, imagine that me being flip. Um, so, but there's a lot of great research around boards and leadership that when there's just one woman at the table, it's really hard to speak up. And I've actually had some of these experiences in private sector situations, and so I actually have. I, I'm completely. Um, aligned with this research. But then when there's a second or a third, all of a sudden, the ability to say something or the awareness of what's going on, it just shifts. So there are just way more places when there's not a single female or a single underrepresented voice. And that just creates a lot more opportunity for these issues to A, I mean, so some of the, 
the ways that, especially implicit bias, which is the hardest thing to fight, is pernicious, is when you're constantly asked questions that other people aren't asked. Because there are some questions, like who's watching your kid, that just, like it was we saw during the pandemic, some days there's not a good answer to that. Because some days everything just falls apart. If you are a family, right? Like kids get sick all the time. Newsflash, right? And rules aren't integrated, right? So your daycare tells you, you can't bring them in. There's no backup daycare. You're not supposed to bring them to work. You're not, if you leave them home alone, then you get the government involved, like all of the things. And then you don't have enough sick days. Like at some point you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this child? I'm going to like, um, and I actually think in some ways it was good that so many people like had that experience all at the same time that it almost brought the economy down um, for a while during the pandemic that we had to be like, oh yeah, like this system doesn't work like this early care system. We better fix it. Or at least we should be cognizant that it really has some huge holes in it. Um, so I think that's a huge change. And I think it is why, frankly, so many governors who, whether they were reelected or just newly elected, like Governor Healy in this uh, current uh, or, or new governor, are focused on early child care, whether they have children or not, because they're like, oh, man, that that was uh, not good. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but it was safe to say it all of a sudden. So I think it is different. I don't think it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely not. But it, it is like that the circle that come back to now. Um, it is interesting 20 years later. It's one of those things where, uh, have you spoken much with Governor Healy? Yes. Um, she was actually out here at the farm. She's uh, met the rescue animals. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we've also had some private conversations that, believe it or not, I can use discretion and I will not share. Okay. I, I, but I, I appreciate that because I didn't, obviously, different political parties, but in different experiences, different times in, in society but obviously a lot of this same shared experiences that like no one else has experienced besides you and i think uh, like i'm reading so much what you said reminds me of like stuff i'm reading uh, president obama's book right now and um how much like he relied on like the unsuccessful campaigns of like jesse jackson or like people that have like done things before that like allowed him to do that and so whatever i think just credit i don't know that you get enough credit for what what you did um but I'm curious now, two things. One, we Ricky and I want to hear a little bit more. You've mentioned it. You sprinkled it throughout about what you're doing now. But before that, obviously, politically, times have changed. Uh, like the Republican Party that I grew up with, with the, you know, the you, the Salucci, Romney um, of, of George W. Bush, McCain, like that Republican Party is not in ascendancy anymore. It's not dominant. And so where do you see yourself politically now? If, 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 I mean, you don't need to put a label on her. If- no, no, I'm, a, I'm still a Republican and I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm working on a speech on this um, that there actually maybe is hope for both. Um, kind of, you, know, you have to hit bottom before you can come up. But so one of the um, things that I've been fascinated with is and frustrated by 
is this whole sort of velocity of change and how society is changing things so quickly. And it's one of the reasons I'm frustrated that we're not leveraging technology to have our education system meet the needs of all of our children. Um, but doing that, you know, despite my flip, um, you know, uh, articulation, I mean, it's hard because technology changes so fast and government works really slowly. And so I've been, one of the things I talk about a lot is sort of this mismatch in the velocity of change. And so this theory I'm working on is, you know, you can't govern through a rules-based system when you have that mismatch. You really have to transition to a trust-based system and an outcomes-based system. And you're not going to set up this whole new construct of an outcomes-based system that can only work based on trust by trying to attack it at the federal level. Because let's be honest, A, there's no trust there right now, but even so, it intellectually makes sense to me. And of course, it would be hard to build trust at the unit of government that is the furthest away from the people that you know the best. If we're going to have to figure out a way to design within our current constitution and structure, I'm not talking about blowing the whole thing up, but just a different structure of regulation, right, to keep up with how fast things change, then it's going to have to happen at the local and the state level. And that is effectively a Republican idea, right? bring more power back closer to where people are. That used to be actually, I was an American studies major, it might shock my professors that I've retained anything or actually was studying. But I mean, that is small R republicanism, right? Like it's, I'm calling it sort of a new form of federalism, like only at the federal level, those things which can only be done by the federal government. Um, and you're obviously going to trust, you know, your local government where it's, you know, your selectman or your city councilor that you're likely to see at the grocery store or, you know, you can get to that meeting and hear why, you know, they're setting up a system that's different in a different way. So I also think when you're setting up a trust-based system and it's outcomes-based, it makes it much more uh, viable to do um, public-private partnerships and set up innovative systems. And to me, that's when individuals of conscience step forward and what better than people of faith and you don't have to be Catholic, right? But, or people committed to their community, like this is the moment, whether you're Republican or a Democrat, I have said to folks, and this will segue very nicely into what I'm doing now. Um, I, and this gets back to my mom a little bit, right? Like, all right, life isn't fair, move on. So the Republican Party is a shit storm at the federal level, no doubt, right? And a lot of people are really, um, you know, just demoralized by our federal politics my daughters, but for he who shall not be named, who is the last Republican president, 
would have been, you know, two of the three might have been uh, Republicans. Certainly they would have been independents. Mm -hmm. um, they, none of, like two of the three are now Democrats and one is embarrassed on a college campus to even say she's, you know, unaffiliated with either party. That's like a, but all that what it is, I say to them all the time, I don't want to hear one more complaint about a policy, a problem, unless you're going to be part of the solution. Because none of us, right, are powerless, particularly those of us. So I started, I'll wrap this like where I started. So I told you, right, I show up on college campus. I was pissed, right? Like this isn't fair, wore this chip on my shoulder. And I carried that. And then I go to Rome my junior year. And we have this great uh, professor, Professor Andriotti. I wish I could find her again sometime. Her father was actually the prime minister for 37 seconds, twice, I think. I She was like thin, chain smoker. You could do that then. She was teaching our Italian history course, like everything about her. I just was enamored of. Brilliant. We get our first test back. And she's like flipping them as only Italian could. I'm talking with my hands, which you can't see because Zoom sucks today. <laughs> but she's like flipping them onto our uh, table. And I actually did pretty well. I think I got a B minus, which I was like, I'm, a, I'm abroad. I don't really care. I'm not graduating with honors anyway. Um, but apparently I had one of the better. Um, I was used to taking tests without studying. Apparently some of my uh, classmates were not so used to this. Uh, so she like, stands at the front of the class and says, you are the most privileged students from the wealthiest nation in the world. Your parents or someone are paying for you to spend five months in the most beautiful part of the entire world. And all you have to do for all of these privileges is come to three, only she says it in her awesome accent, blowing smoke rings, right? Come to three or four classes. And I promise you, the level of effort required in this class that I'm teaching is nowhere near what would be required in a normal class of students with half of your, like, she's going on and on. And basically, she's reading us the riot act, like we're a bunch of spoiled brats, right? And probably most of my spoiled brat uh, classmates were like, yeah, go ahead and finish so we can like get on to like whatever drinking thing we're going to do next. That landed so like on me because I had been comparing myself to them, the kids in the class. What she did is she flipped the script, right? She was saying to me, listen, shithead, you are, you're one of them. You're not like, you might be at the back or however you measure yourself of this like race of them, but there are like hundreds of thousands of people behind you. And what are you going to do about that? And that is probably the answer to your first question, Brendan, right? Like, 
all that privilege. And I had been walking around thinking about all the privilege I didn't have. And I even hate to use that word because it's so loaded today, but I had been given such an opportunity. Yeah, I had to scrape dishes to do it. I had to like wear the wrong clothes for a while until I, you know, worked an extra summer job the next year and figured out because, you know, there was no online shopping. So, you know, where to go find those tree torrents, which I definitely found. And anyway, we moved on to like the V-neck limited sweater that you wore backwards and I could pull that off. So um, it was a huge moment for me. And I think we're at one of those moments now. And so I would say similar, not as like, I'll never be as cool as her. I do not smoke. Uh, but I would say to all these people, right? Like here we are feeling so sorry for ourselves, right? As a country and everything we've gone through with COVID and our politics are a mess. We are still, you know, there. look, look what's going on in Ukraine. Look what's going on in South America, we are still the richest country with the most resources in the entire world. So what are you going to do about it? And right now, the best thing to do is to go local and try to fix the things. And maybe the unit of change, right? Mother Teresa, you know, is in your own community. So uh, you know, I've had a probably the roughest year of my life, but that brings a ton of clarity. And I've been given so much um, to your point, right? Like, yeah, you know, I could have won three elections, maybe more, but I have been given so many blessings. I married a great guy. He owned this beautiful farm. I have three daughters who are just awesome and I can use that power to hopefully, um, you know, improve the education system still. Um, so we signed a MOU with the city of North Adams, which is a district I went to. Middle school education is probably the hardest thing to impact. So we're doing a middle school summer learning program. Um, I'm using all my good fundraising skills and my uh, connections in education innovation and everywhere else and uh, recruited the woman who used to run the great private school in town uh, to do this work. We're also combining animal rescue because I saw from my husband's experience just how open spaces and animals, I was never a big animal person. There's some great irony here, but um, that there's some real uh, some real saving um, that can happen for kids, right? And responsibility and a lot of life skills that get built um, working in that space. And so, you know, yeah, I am not a big fan of the Republican Party at the uh, federal level right now, but what, what, what does that matter to the difference I can make um, on the things that I care about? Yeah, that's uh, that's an inspiring way to end this conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, Ricky, go ahead. Uh, I, it's same. Just going to echo that. This is uh, no better way to, to wrap up this conversation. I think we always think, or Brendan at least, always tries to look on the 
brighter side or where we can make the where it we must be a trinity it. thing it must be it must that optimism when people call you bantam you the only thing to do is to like try <laughs> to think of the positive uh, yeah no that's that that's so great and thank you so much again governor swift for your time like you've been incredibly gracious and open with us and there's still so i mean honestly like this has been what an hour and 10 minutes, hour, 15 minutes. And there's still so much I would love to talk to you about, but we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. Maybe we can, we can get you back on um, some other time. We but, have uh, if- volunteer roles available at the farm. It's Cobble Hill Farm Education and Rescue. We just, I, all right. This is a secret. We just got our nonprofit status in the mail, but I have to do a video announcing it for reals, wow. but so sh- but uh chfarm.org we have a website you can sign up for my newsletter and you'll see the actual announcement but uh lots of opportunities to come meet the pain in the ass goats that dictate my life or willie the mini donkey uh who everybody loves it's all a good thing and if there's fresh eggs so if you run to stop and shop brendan and there's no eggs I'm selling but eggs. I'm out to North Adams. That's right. <laughs> I'm yeah. actually in Williamstown, which is okay. my dirty little secret, but I'm serving the North Adams community. Yeah. Um, and so where else, in addition to the website, where else, if people were interested in, in the work that you're doing or, or want to get involved or just follow it more closely, where else could they follow you? I think they probably just have to drive to Williamstown. And yeah. I, some guy told me the other day he was at the police station and asked how to find my farm. And they gave him explicit instructions for how to get here. And the guy's like, should I like call they're like oh no people just wander up so i'm like well that makes me feel safe (laughs) (laughs) because nobody drives this far and it's going to be minus 60 degree wind chills so good luck yeah yeah head on out i do like that we started this conversation on advancing through technology and ended it on just asking for uh good old-fashioned directions yes Yeah. Stop at the police station. There you go. You can see me once more. Oh, but if you're going to drive up. All right. Where did he go? I do have this big Akita. So don't get any ideas. That's that's how you're staying safe. All right. Well, we've kept you long enough. Thank you so much. Go bring the minis in. Make sure that they don't freeze. (laughs) I went live on the Facebook page. You could see uh me putting hey I was not dressed like this everywhere like to keep the cold out I, I, I'm, I'm basically a renaissance woman I could do it <laughs> <That's>, honestly <laughs> it sounds like it yeah, yeah. So, that's typical trinity that's that's how we produce yeah <laughs> I'm sure I probably was bailing hay when I was there I don't remember yeah yeah, yeah. all right well thank thank you so much Governor Swift um we were welcome we, we, guys um, all right I'll talk to you good luck there all right bye Well, that was awesome. <laughs> like I, I, I'm, I just, I just feel so lucky uh, that people like Governor Swift like give us so much time. And that was just such like an open and honest and sprawling conversation. There's so much to digest. It's hard to even to try to put it in order because there's so much that she said that I want to uh, think about. But I think that things you know, immediately after that conversation that stand out to me that she took this like chip on her shoulder from this like very specific experience that she had and was pretty much like, I want to go make a a change on that. And 
sometimes I, I look at, um, I, I forget the kid's name um, down in Florida who was just elected to Congress. Uh, I think he's like 25 years old. And I'm, I'm like, how can you possibly like what, what, like, I, I just, I just feel like inadequate in so many ways. Like there's so much I don't know. And there's like, the, I don't have the experience in it. And while I think there's, there's, you know, value in being humble in, in that sort of sense, there is also value in being like, well, I am passionate about this and I do think I can make a difference. And so I'm going to go try to do that. And it's just, she's just a tremendous example of that. Again, 25 years old as a, as a state Senator, and then what 30, 34, 35 is as a Lieutenant governor and 36 as an acting governor. It, it's and did a great job. And the, another thing, like, I, I wish we you, you try to get us there more of like all of, that she accomplished, like during her, her time in politics, uh, you know, unfortunately, you and I were young during the time, but I do remember some of those headlines and some of the negative press that she was referencing. And that I do, you know, unfortunately, somewhat associate her tenure with like her kids and like the news that I heard around that. And like, and even as I was giving her bio, I felt victim to that too, of just like, oh, part of the historic nature of of her time in off her candidacy and her time in office was having kids, but like she did so much. And um like I said to her, I don't think she gets the the due, the credit that she has. And like, in while society has changed and like we were able to elect a, a female governor, like we still, that that's a huge step forward, but we, you know, Governor Healy doesn't have any kids, you know, like it, it's a, it's a different type of thing. And it's, I do think Ricky said like a lot of times we'll mention like these, the historic nature of some of these elections in recent years. And I think in some ways people are like, well, I just, why don't you just say that? Like, why talk about that? Right? Like, why say it's the first, you know, openly gay, openly um, female to be elected? Right? But it's like there are these ceilings, and it's obviously easy for me as a white man to like point to these ceilings. So when like, and when I don't really have those same ceilings, but that exist, and it's so important for people to like do the work and take the chances to open the doors for other people later. And that's why I referenced the Obama thing because you know there are so many people that. You know, whether it was Edward Brooke at the at the Senate level or some of like the black governors or black black senators and the the, the people that run for president, and then all of a sudden, while it's not perfect, as as um, Governor Swift said, like it's it's open enough, it's opened that door enough where you can get a, a black president, and you know we've opened the door enough where we can elect a, a female governor. But there are still a, like a lot of those ceilings that exist for all sorts of different people. Um, those are a couple of like my immediate reactions. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I think building on so it's kind of that one of the first things you said that at at twenty five, kind of having the confidence and in, in like, uh, for lack of a better phrase, like the courage in your own conviction to to take it somewhere. I think that that for me is like one of the most remarkable things. I feel like growing up and and feeling like things were either unfair or didn't work. But sort of, you know, a quiet or resigned exhale and being like, well, that's just how they are versus somebody who's just like, oh, no, 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 there's a system that allows us to change it. And like not only getting in there, but then specifically driving for this education reform. um, I I mean, I think that 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 like what like that what what a story that's just that's an incredible um set of achievements and then you know to to what you were saying in terms of the breaking the those glass ceilings like she was talking about like they're just they were asking me questions that you would only ever ask me because I was a woman because I was a mother 
And that idea that, you know, one person obviously like expands the opportunity, but one person in there alone, all of a sudden you focus on why they're so different from everybody else that's in this room. And I think that that part of that, or like teasing out some more of what she was saying is that like when you get enough people that it's normal for somebody for like several, you're going to have a couple of mothers and they'll know certain things about, you know, things that impact them and, and how they have to, how the role needs to be adapted to, uh, to accommodate certain differences that people have. Um, but that also like, we don't actually need to focus on that because now there are a couple people like that and it's a non-issue anymore. And I think that that is so universal in so many of the different, like, you know, the, the DEI type of initiatives that we're looking for, uh, that we're looking to kind of like push forward. Like, how do we get to a point really where people don't feel like you have to get, you know, sort of special treatment because you are different than kind of the, the, whatever everyone's notion of like who you should be, whether that's like governor or somebody in a boardroom or a teacher or whatever. I think there are, um, that there's obviously like a lot of work to do there, but you know, you always have to give the kudos to the trailblazers. Like that's a absolutely right. And she is right. And that's why I keep coming back to like having had the chance, like read more about her and now obviously now hear more about her experience. Like, again, I'll say the third time, like she doesn't get the credit that she deserves. I'm incredibly lucky that we get to talk to her. I guess last thing I'll say, kind of piggybacking off your point of not only did she was, she had the convictions to make change, to get into the system, but then also to get out of the system. And it was like, yeah, polit- obviously, like podcasts like this, we have so much attention to politics, right, as a way of, as the main vehicle of change. But that doesn't mean, like, it's the only vehicle of change. And I think she's, it, it seems to me, I don't want to speak for her, but she's as proud, if not more proud, of all the work that she's done in these last 20 years in terms of the, you know, changes she's made with education reform or the mentorship she's done for for women and underprivileged kids. And, like, to still, like, if you identify an issue, politics is one way you can change it, but it's not the only way. And so like, that's why even at the end would do is really inspiring. Like go change it. Like maybe it is go run for office. If, if that's something that you feel passionate about and qualified to do, but it can, you can do that in your own communities. And that way it comes back to like the, like the local change that she was talking about. It was, that's why it was inspiring at the end. Yeah. I mean, and, and I guess if I, if I leave with one final kind of observation, I, I just did think it was, so fascinating that where sort of she started in her political career and like formulating this like huge plan for education reform that was really, I mean, you know, she didn't want you to reduce the MCAS to just like a standardized test, which it's not, I I don't want, I don't want to minimize sort of the like broader nature of it. But, you know, when you think about the MCAS, when I think about the MCAS, I think about, I think about the tests in fourth grade, eighth grade Mm -hmm. uh, that are sort of like, you know, uh, emblematic of the Massachusetts like education system. I think it's so interesting that she is like really advocating for this evolution away from that. Um, and yeah, that she's like continuing to learn about these issues and figure out, okay, this works here. doesn't work here. This works for these, for these people doesn't work for those. And is, is like willing to learn and grow and change, over time, which I think is, I mean, that's a real testament. Um, Great example. I'm not so sure I, I'm as good as I, I, I could, uh, I, that I'm as good as that, um, but certainly an example uh, for, for us all. 
And also, she's so fun. <laughs> like, 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 I know she was talking about like her heyday where she sounds awesome. Like, I think we would have been friends at training. I think we all would have hung out together and been great. But like, she seems super fun now. So like, that was, I think that was maybe the most uh, like pleasant surprise of the conversation of just like, wow, I, 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 I enjoy listening to you, not only to learn from you, but I'm like, I'm genuinely engaged in like how you're telling these stories in this conversation. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, as always, uh, thank you to everyone that listens. Again, thank you to Governor Swift. And uh, thank you. Thank you to you, Ricky. <laughs> to you too, Brendan. And to your, to your Bantam family. It's, uh, it's ever, ever growing. Yeah, always good to have a fellow band on the, on the program. All right. Until next time. See you then. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day no agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was We began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal 
Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus.